And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. It is Harrison Smith back with episode 45 of Cinema, brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. Episode 43 was about Death House and and the road to Death House. And uh, part of that was I was talking about, of course, the, the, the main thing about Death House were all the stars that were in it, all the horror icons or legends. And that's a main reason why people really wanted to see that film. And that was to see all of these legends connected together. And, and while I was working on Death House, I got to work uh, one-on-one with Gunnar Hansen, who is no longer with us. And I also got to work with Sid Haig, who recently has departed and is no longer with us. And while talking with both men and listening to their very long careers in this industry. One of the things I thought of while making this movie and working with all these wonderful people who have brought so many memories and so many good times to all of us who love the genre so much, what happens when they're all gone? You go to these conventions and, you know, Kane Hodder is there and Dee Wallace and Barbara Crampton and Adrian Barbeau. All these people are there, you know, Bill Mosley, Debbie Rashawn. I often wonder, like, who's going to take their spots at those tables? Who's going to be holding the roundtable discussions and, and the audience participations when Robert Englund is gone? And, and you know, I know it sounds morbid, but hey, you know, it's, it's horror. So, you know, suck it up. It is something that needs to be discussed and looked at because they're not going to be around forever. Is there anybody to really take their place. That's what I guess I really want to know is like uh, who's in today's modern horror films, who is taking over like eventually down the road, 10, 20, 30 years from now, who's going to be sitting at those tables? And and the reason why I say this is, is I remember when I was starting to scout for Death House and, and lining up a lot of the, uh, the the characters, the the icons, the horror icons that were going to be in this. And one of the easiest ways to get to them directly was to simply just go to any nearby conventions because they're there. And while I was up at one convention in New York, I saw that when I walked in, before I went to go to, to some of the, the target icons, the, the, the legends, I noticed that some of the tables were starting to be populated by, I, I don't know how to phrase this, I'm, I'm not... I'm not being condescending and I'm I'm not being dismissive, but one of them was a a zombie from The Walking Dead. And while this person had their name on their banner, all their their claim to fame was is that they were a zombie in one of the scenes in The Walking Dead. And I kind of thought, well, that kind of pales into comparison when you have Doug Bradley over here and Felissa Rose over there and Kane Hodder and Linda Blair, Amanda Wiss, Heather Leggenkamp. Uh, you, you have all these great icons and we have, you know, the zombie from one of the scenes of, I couldn't even tell you, was it just one scene from one season of The Walking Dead, like one episode? Is that what's going to replace? 
I, I want to look at things in context a little bit with this podcast. And this is just one of those kind of free thought podcasts because really you're the fans. Like I would love to hear from you on, on what you think about this. So I did a previous episode. If you go back in, into my catalog and if you look at the, uh, the episode called Friday the 13th Gets Lucky. And what I did was uh, I looked at the historical context of the Friday the 13th franchise because history it is is extremely important to the success or failure of a motion picture and especially with horror. So if you go back and you listen to that episode, you're going to see that the big thing was why so many of these movies are so beloved now is because they're embraced by predominantly Generation X. We grew up with these films. We we were little kids when some of these films came out. We were teenagers when when most of these films came out. And we we followed them all the way through. And I'm I'm gonna give you a blueprint and a roadmap here. You know, the, the rise of fandom is is congruent with the historical context of the time and the rise of the 80s and and you know this weird flux and mix of of conservative and liberal attitudes and while the 80s are seen as this party decade and you know the decade of John Hughes and and the great teen comedies and some of the great comedies of of the 1980s you know that that resonated with us we we have to also look at that you know there were some pretty bad times in the 80s as well too and all the foundations for 911 and everything were falling in place and and you know the 80s were kind of we came out of the you know the the great recession of the Carter years and the and the fuel crisis and and Reagan had promised it was morning again in America and and 80s were just going to be great Saturday night live was basically resurrected and gave us Eddie Murphy as as I said in that podcast I believe it, it wasn't Saturday night live it was just basically the Eddie Murphy show and all these movies were coming out especially fantasy and and all all these like different horror franchises and I'm going to take a look at all of this in in some detail I I think the 80s really taught us or showed us what we were missing. And and that has to go back a little bit. Look, sequels have always been around and, and hell, remakes have been around. The first remake that I remember really making any type of, of impact on me was the 1976 remake of King Kong. I had grown up as a little kid watching the 1933 black and white I, I swear, since I was like three, four, maybe five years old, I, I grew up with Kong. I, I believe at that time I was nine years old when I went to see it. And it was very different. And I remember some people grumbling when they walked out saying, oh, it's not like the original. And and if you remember, uh, that was a Rick Baker monkey suit for Kong. There was no CGI at the time. And it wasn't stop motion animation like the original 33 Kong was Far less monsters in it, other than I believe he he fought a giant python or something like that, but there was no T-Rex. There was nothing along that line. But as a kid, I remember it was a big deal. This was a bigger, badder Kong in 1976. The artwork portrayed him up on the Twin Towers with a jet grasped in his one hand and uh, the girl in the other, Jessica Lang in the other. Well, you know, then you you start to realize that when you go to see this, it was helicopters at the end that killed him. I kept waiting for the jets, but it was a big widescreen remake. And Jaws 2 came along not long after, after the smash hit of Jaws. 
and studios began to realize what they were missing really with sequels and and the start of franchises. And I'm going to repeat again, sequels were nothing new in the late 70s, but tentpole pictures and franchises, well, that was new. And Jaws 2, in my opinion, really helped kick that off. Now, Star Wars came along and nobody expected Star Wars. Even George Lucas did not expect Star Wars to do well. And you can listen to that in my other previous episode on on the Star Wars franchise, uh, basically asking if George Lucas is the Phantom Menace. You can find that episode in my catalog. However, Star Wars opened up the door to really popularizing these great comic book characters, making toys out of them, and instilling these characters deeper into a kid's life. And I remember getting the Land Speeder and the Luke Skywalker figure and Ben Kenobi. And, and then it just went from there. And of course, Star Wars was the number one hit after Jaws. And of course, a sequel was going to be demanded. So you have these big, gigantic box office movies. Look, Jaws changed the way not only movies were made, but how they were released. Before Jaws came along, the summer was considered the dead period in Hollywood. When people go to the beach, they go camping, they go outside, they don't go to the movies. And if they do, it's just to catch some, you know, small film for the air conditioning kind of thing is when that all started. That's what theaters started to do in the 50s with television to lure people into the theaters. They offered air conditioning and then they offered big widescreen color and Cinerama and all those things and 3D to get you away from your TV sets. Jaws 2 popularized the sequel and and we showed that we could make a franchise out of a shark movie and horror followed in these same footsteps. So a movie like Halloween, which really there was no plan for a sequel, goes through the roof and suddenly there's going to be a sequel. The audience demands it. The studio demands it. And John Carpenter and Tommy Lee Wallace even said about that. They said, look, we knew there was going to be a sequel. Roy Scheider said that with Jaws 2. He said, I I tried to get out of it. But in the end, even after his whole three-picture deal, uh, multi-picture deal with Universal and that whole legal mess when Universal went after him legally for another picture and they absolved his... Uh, contract for one of the movies, they they combined two into one if he came back for Jaws 2, is because Scheider even said, look, they were just going to get somebody else to play me, and then I'm going to go see this movie and go, well, that really should have been me up on the screen. But there was something else going on at this time too, and that was the creation of home box office, cable, and home video recorders, players, that kind of thing, the Betamax. And this brought movies home to us. Home box office was exactly that. You're bringing the box office of the theater into your home. And these movies even became more personal. And most of all, they saturated us. Look, I am old enough to remember a time when if you didn't see the movie in theaters, you didn't see it. That's it. You waited until maybe there was a re-release or it eventually made its way somewhere along the line to free TV and a network premiere. But then HBO came along. Then home video systems came along. And suddenly these movies found themselves onto our shelves and they became the stuff of late night cable viewing. Look, I'm going to tell you, going through middle school, those formative years, 
I would have been lost without HBO. We didn't have a video recorder in the house, so I didn't have that. And they were expensive. And I, I've talked about that in previous episodes. They were extremely expensive. But HBO and, and cable was not. And we got to watch so many great movies. Look, I can still tell you, I remember coming home in the summer of 1980. My mom took us up to a river to go swimming. It was this small beach. And I came home and opened up the mailbox and there was the beloved HBO guide. It was this small booklet that listed all the things for the upcoming month. And it usually arrived about two weeks before the month. And Jaws 2 was on the front page of that booklet. And I went nuts. I saw Jaws 2 in theaters and I wanted to see it again and again and again. My mother was like, I am not driving you to the movie theater. And where it was playing at the time was far from where I lived because where I lived, there was no local movie theater. So my mom is like, I'm not driving you down there. You're not sitting through this movie again and again and again. That was the only way you could see it. So when it came on HBO, I'm not kidding you. I watched it every damn time that movie aired and they aired it over the summer even when it came on at like one o'clock in the morning. And that was the best HBO. And some of you are nodding right now because man, it wasn't just Jaws 2. They put on shit that never got a theatrical release or if it did, it, it just played for like a couple days and it left. And a lot of times these movies, they played the big venues like in New York, these midnight movie theaters, but HBO, they needed programming and they started padding, especially their late nights with stuff that there was just no way you were going to see anywhere else. And man, did I love the horror. I remember the one, uh, the Jack Palance film that had Larry Storch, Agarn from F Troop without warning. And some of you know what I mean. That big headed alien that was throwing those flippy kind of parasitic things that landed on the back of your neck or something and, and sucked the brains out of you, whatever it was. It was great. And I would sit up late night in the summertime. I can still hear the crickets. I can still smell the smell of summer, the, the leaves and the, the flowers, everything coming through the windows. We had no air conditioning. So our living room windows were open. My parents were in bed and I am watching late night. And let me tell you, late night was the best place for tits and ass. That's where as a boy, as a teenager, you're just sitting on the couch and you're watching these great horror films with hot naked chicks in them. And, and it just really, a lot of times, it just didn't get any better than that. And that is important. That kind of memory, that kind of context is so absolutely important to loving these horror films and why we revere the people that were in them. Because it's not just that, look, a lot of these films, some of them were not very good at all, but it doesn't matter. They gave us such fun. Look, anybody out there listening right now, do you remember that really awful Kathy Lee Crosby film? That's what I'm saying. Kathy Lee Crosby from That's Incredible, the movie The Dark, which was supposed to start out, I guess, as some kind of psycho slasher movie and ended up an alien movie where they were making the, the villain shoot lasers out of his eyes. Look, the big thing that I remember was there was some decapitation scene where somebody went down a back alley and you heard him get attacked and they come walking out without a head. And for some reason, the body is without a head is making this sound like, ooh, how's it making any sound when it doesn't have a head and any vocal cords? But it doesn't matter. It was fun. 
And I, I watched Wolfen with Albert Finney and Gregory Hines and uh, Up From the Depths with Roger Corman with the that prehistoric fish movie that was just god-awful and Humanoids from the Deep, which I watched so many times. My God, these were great. And Doug McClure, man, Doug McClure at the Earth's core, which I saw on a drive-in and uh, the people that time forgot and the land that time forgot. I saw the original land that time forgot in theaters when I was a kid, like in the 70s. And that's what I mean. Like these people became such beloved figures. And I think that's why my favorite of all the mystery science theaters, all 11 seasons is the one where they rift the land that time forgot because even they got it, man. It's Doug McClure. And the way they would say Doug McClure, these people became part of us and they are such a huge part of our memories and our past that we love them. We don't even know them, but we love them. We love them for what they represent. And that is why we love so bad. It's good movies. All these sequels then they started becoming repetitious and these villains like Jason and uh, Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger, they became burned into our collective consciousness. So they became popular icons and figures and there were spinoffs like Freddy's Nightmares and, and you know, uh, Jason. They even had a Friday the 13th series, which actually had nothing to do with the whole slasher thing. But the fact was we had sequel after sequel after sequel and and we almost they almost became comfortable to us like we started really liking Jason. I mean, let's really look at what Jason Voorhees is. He's a murderer. He kills kids and yet here we were teenagers, you know, going out. Look, I was I was a horny teenager especially by the time the final chapter came around and look, I'm I'm the kid that's making out in a car. Uh, you know, screwing around. We used to go to the actual camp where they shot the original Friday the 13th in Blairstown, New Jersey. And one night, my buddy and I, we packed up booze, we got some girls, and we went over there and we snuck in. And the best part was we had the girls scared and it was one of the best makeout sessions I ever had. That's what I think of when I think of Friday the 13th. And I think a lot of you listening right now, you get it too. You understand. And the reason why I say that is when I was doing my scouting for Death House, I would go and sometimes just stand by the tables waiting for Kane Hodder or Tony Todd to be finished so I could talk with them. And <laughs> you would hear these fans come up and they would they would bring their kids with them. And, and usually it's fathers, but a lot of mothers, women love horror as we know. So it's, it's not a gender thing. I mean, horror is across the board, but man, do some women really love it? I think more than the men and they come up with their DVDs and they, they ask for the signatures and they gladly fork over the money for the signature. But here's what comes with it. They don't just say, thank you. Oh, I love Friday the 13th. They talk about things like, I remember the first time I saw Friday the 13th, or I saw your movie, Nightmare on Elm Street, or whatever it is, Hellraiser, it doesn't matter. They always have a story about when they saw it. And then the kids, they say, now I got my kids watching these. They're passing this on. This is a generational thing. This is a transference of memories and feelings into the next vessel. And you hear the kids go, oh my God, my dad never stops talking about this. And he's told us 50 times, or my mom told us about the time she went to the drive-in and she saw Reanimator and blah, 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 blah. They go on. It's about sharing wonderful, warm memories. 
And the ironic thing is, that is what horror provides. Look, one of the best memories that I have of seeing a horror film in theaters, aside from Friday the 13th for the final chapter, which I'll get into, is when I took my mother to go see Cujo. Because the reason why is, I just started working at the movie theater as a kid. I was 15 as an usher, and it was my first free movie. And my mother so wanted to see Cujo that summer. She read the book. She was a Stephen King fan. In fact, my mother turned me on to Stephen King. She really wanted to see it, and I was cool. I was her son that we walked in for free. We didn't put any money at the box office. My boss was like, have a good time. And I treated my mother to a free movie. And I will never forget that memory. And here's what I equate with it. Dee Wallace gave me that memory. I was also 15. I went to go see uh, Sleepaway Camp down at our local theater. It didn't play at the mall. And everybody had been talking about it and said I had this great ending and blah, blah, blah. And I took this girl with me to go see it on a date. And she knew I love horror movies and she knew I love monster movies and all that stuff. So she was ready for this, I felt. And the, I'm not even going to give it away now because I don't want anybody going, what? What was the ending to Sleepaway Camp? All I can tell you is if you're brand new to horror, you need to see it. And the ending is is still fantastic to this day. And when the ending happened in the movie, the audience gasped and this girl was very, very quiet. And on the way out in the lobby, she said, what, what did you think of this movie? And I remember saying, I thought the girl uh, in the film, I thought she was fantastic, which was, you know, Felissa Rose. And I said, I thought that young girl did a really good job. And I thought, and here's what I said, I thought it was a fun little horror film. And this girl that I was dating, she said to me, she goes, you know, I don't think I can date someone who thought that was a fun little horror movie. And I remember it was like a Seinfeld thing. It was like, okay, we're broken up. And it was like, I, I just guess we're not going to see each other again and this isn't going to work and you know have a good life kind of thing and she was like what are you serious I'm like well look obviously look this is what I like and and it's not going to work but I really appreciate you coming out and look I paid for a movie I bought her popcorn and bought her dinner that night I was 15 and buying you know going on full-fledged dates but the irony is I not only went on to work with Felissa Rose in Camp Dread we became business partners and she is the closest thing I have to a sister now those are great memories. And there are so many more. Friday the 13th, 4, the final chapter, I was an usher at that movie theater. And I remember so many, I used to let a lot of my friends in to see these movies for free, but that was supposed to be the big deal. This is the final Friday, right? This is it. No more. Jason's going to get his. It's going to be unlucky for Jason, if you remember the poster. And it was Friday, April 13th. I think it was April. And I remembered people screaming like hell. I'd stand in the back of the theater and I could see my friends that I let in and I was enjoying that they were terrified. And that ending when Tom Savini's special effects extravaganza is going and and Jason falls on that machete and it goes up through his eyeball and skull. Oh my God, did people go nuts. And it was fantastic. Those are great memories. And I went on to work with Corey Feldman. Who knew when I was standing in at 15, 16 years old in the back of that theater that I would one day go to work with Tommy Jarvis one day on Six Degrees of Hell. That's what I'm saying. I I get this warm spot right now talking about it all. And my question is, when I see these people, I always thank them. I've thanked Chris Sarandon. I've I've thanked Dee Wallace many times. Adrian Barbeau, who I have a great friendship with. 
all these people, Heather Lagenkamp, Amanda Wiss. I never take Amanda Wiss's friendship for granted. Uh, Debbie Rashawn. It was such a pleasure just working with her on Death House. And look, I know I'm name dropping, name dropping, name dropping. But what I'm trying to convey is these are truly legends. And they gave us more than just movies. They gave us a piece of them. They gave us memories. We wrap ourselves around these movies. You know, Barbara Crampton in um, Reanimator and, and From Beyond. We embrace them because when I look at these people, I look at the memories and the time. I look at them through the eyes of when I was watching their films when I was a kid and, and they brought me such joy. So when, when they're at these tables and they're signing autographs and they're, they're talking and they're shaking hands... You should really, I mean, if you're not, you should really appreciate what they're doing because they're really giving us something, you know, whether it's Bill Mosley or Doug Bradley or Linda Blair, it doesn't matter when we lose them, we're heartbroken because when Gunner died, it wasn't just that Gunner died. A lot of people only knew him from a handshake, a smile and and a photograph or, or getting an autograph. And that's great. But we knew him for Leatherface. And we knew him for the memories that he gave us because of Leatherface. Whether, you know, he scared the hell out of us in the movie theater or, you know, hours later we went home and we were terrified. What All of you have stories of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre if you saw it. All of you can remember probably the first time. It's That's what I'm saying. It's these kind of memories that give us something more than just the transference of viewing a motion picture. So my concern, of course, is as one by one, those chairs become empty at these conventions and those banners go down, who's replacing them? Zombie number four from episode 12, season three. Look, home video and cable, they gave new lives to many of these films. Nightmare on Elm Street did not do well at the box office. I remember going to see it in an almost empty theater. Halloween 3 started out packed in the theater. And I'm telling you, by the end of the movie, pretty much over half the the audience had walked out. They were so pissed off with the movie. And I have an episode on that. Okay, Halloween 3 deserves a second look. Please look that up in my catalog. John Carpenter's The Thing. I watched that in a near empty movie theater. E.T. totally destroyed John Carpenter's The Thing's box office promise. It was gone. However, cable and home video gave all of these films and more a second life. Chud. I mean, Chud, what a ridiculous title, right? Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dwellers. And I saw it in theaters. I got to see that movie in the theater. Maniac. All these other movies. Mother's Day. So many of them, they got second lives on home video and on cable that reached a whole new audience. And again, a lot of them were those late night people that sat up late. I am telling you, I'm willing to bet most people listening to this right now are going, oh my God, I loved Summers with HBO or Prism or Cinemax. It didn't matter. Everything, there were no limits with late night cable. And then when you got your VCRs and you could just pop that cassette in and then you can forward and you can pause, they gave us so much more. And we started to identify these movies with a lot of their stars. 
Look, when I when I saw Linda Blair for the first time, I wanted to tell her the whole story of when I saw The Exorcist for the first time theatrically at Temple University on campus and and what transpired. It was like me and a handful of friends that were probably the only white people in this whole theater. And it was terrific. It was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. And it was a terrific memory. And I equate that with Linda Blair. And I got to meet Jason Miller in a bar in Scranton one time. And I did tell him the story. And I thanked him. Because I just almost wanted to grab this guy and say, thank you. You know, thank you for making such a great film. Thank you for what you gave me. Thank you for the memories. And when I finally got to meet Chris Sarandon, because 1985's Fright Night has so much meaning to me. And I'm not going to get into it on this podcast because some of it's very personal in a very good way. But I can't tell you how much Fright Night means to me as that teenage boy and as an adult now. And when I got to meet Chris Sarandon, I know he's not Jerry Dandridge, but I wanted to tell him like so much about Fright Night and I didn't. I shook his hand and I simply said, I, I just want to thank you for all the memories you've given to me with your art. It was something like that. And I didn't get a picture with him. I didn't get an autograph. I didn't get anything. Eric Roberts brought me to the table and Eric said, look, don't feel like you're an inferior. You are in this industry. You are equals. But I didn't want to bother the guy. But I was just so happy to tell him that. I got to meet Dan Aykroyd recently, uh, this past fall. And when I sat down at the table, look, all I wanted to say to the guy was simply, thanks for all the memories, man. And especially thank you to you and John. And he really seemed to appreciate that. And Aykroyd just looked at me and he said, I think about John every day. Many love the cons because, well, nostalgia. But it's more than that. Like I said, I I truly believe that there's something, even if it's not conscious in people, it's a way to touch their past. It's a way to embrace their past and remember it by seeing these icons. Every star that you see represents a time in your past and a memory. Again, when these people are gone, I mean, will it be Tyra Banks because she was in Halloween Resurrection? Will she be at the table in 20 years? Will it be David Arquette from Scream? What about Jennifer Love Hewitt? Are these the people that will replace? Will it be any of the stars of the Babadook? Like I said, it follows. Will Naomi Watts from The Ring, uh, will they be the ones sitting at these tables? I kind of doubt it. And the reason why I say this is, is that Gen X and and even the boomers, we, we live through all the changes of film. And, and from theatrical to TV, then home video, cable, and then the internet. Gen X lived through it all to see these movies become a commodity. And so the people in them, we they also became the same to us. They became almost hallowed, like deified figures to us. These people represent our past. They represent our teen memories, our first loves, fun, adventure. Like I said, man, I hear it all the time at these cons. It's not about meeting a star. It's about touching a memory. But things are different now. It's not the same. We didn't go through the Reagan 80s. We didn't see the advent of MTV and and consumer television, consumer pop culture. And you, again, can listen to my theories on that uh, under Consuming Cinema, my previous podcast. 
But the theatrical experience isn't the same for the millennials and Generation Z. They they grew up with the internet. They grew up with file sharing. So seeing a movie like Jaws is just as fine to them as watching it on an iPhone or a tablet or on a monitor at home or a 70-inch TV with surround sound. There is something to the theatrical experience. And growing up, I think, again, a lot of you are nodding as you're hearing me. It was different. Seeing a movie in theaters with a group of people and and an audience that were all plugged into the same thing and screaming all at the same time and jumping all at the same time and seeing things collectively and and ooing and eyeing and grossed out, that's a lot different than sitting down and hitting the 30-second jump, just skip, skip, skip to get to the good parts. It was an experience, and that experience is not around now. It's a very different world, and the pandemic recently has changed the theatrical experience once again. Will it ever be the same? And the the thing is, some are saying no. Now we go to the movies and we'll sit spaced apart. Or will theaters survive this at all? Some are worried about that. The movie going experience has been changing for the last 30 or 40 years. And as it changes, so does the historical context of the films that they show and also the audiences. It's not the same thing. I've heard people say, well, I saw Jaws on my TV, but then somebody took me to a screening of it on a big screen in a theater. It's an entirely different movie. Yes, because it was meant to be shown on a big screen. It is an entirely different experience. No different than The Exorcist is a far different experience on the big screen than it is watching it on a television at home or especially on an iPhone or, or some type of Android device. Look, one of the coolest things that I ever saw was when I went to a drive-in to see Jaws in its 1980 re-release. And I was sitting on the roof of this car and as the sun was going down and as that last light went, you could tell when that rectangle screen lights up and all of a sudden, all the cars in the in the drive-in parking lot started honking their horns when you heard the first for the Jaws music. Everybody went nuts. Headlights were flashing. That is something that is a true experience and a wonderful fond memory. And when you meet someone from that cast, you just want to thank them because they gave you that memory. They were part of something that that gave you something wonderful. And that is the magic of movies. And that is what made me want to make movies. I want to give memories to people. So when people say Camp Dread was so much fun or Death House is fun, that's what I want, man. History has changed and we have embraced a remake, reboot, reimagining society. And the world stage is different now. Look, we Gen X, we and and the boomers, but Gen X also, we grew up with the fear of nuclear war and Russians, and they were all coming to get us. The enemy was always out there, and then we lived through 9-11. The millennials and such, they they came in right at the end of 9-11, you know, that kind of thing. And they grew up in a very different world. Yes, they had the 2008 crash, but so far for millennials and for Generation Z, the biggest thing that's hit them has been this coronavirus pandemic. So how will they adjust and how will it change their world? How will this impact our entertainment? You know, we I just read an article recently that most of the 2020 films, they're wondering, will they even make it to the screen this year? And that includes Godzilla vs. Kong. Watching a Godzilla movie is meant for a big screen event. 
It isn't meant for your 70 inch LED or your your small iPhone or, or whatever. It's not meant for that. It's an entirely different experience to sit watching Godzilla King of the Monsters in the theater and hearing people applaud and little kids worried if Godzilla died and they're talking out loud. That is a memory. So I'm ending this podcast with this. For you horror fans, when you go to those next conventions, when you pay over the 25 bucks or whatever it is for a picture, you know, a photo op, whatever it is, be sure to thank them. Thank that star and say, thank you so much for the memories you gave us because one day they're not going to be around. When I sat with Sid Haig at my lunches while making Death House, I just wanted to hear everything this man could tell me because I knew I was sitting with a man who was a wealth of information. He watched the film industry change. And I'm so glad I did because Sid taught me so much. I wasn't his closest friend, but I got to be close with him a number of times to hear his wisdom. And he was a great, compassionate gentleman. I thanked him for his films. I thanked him, especially of all, I thanked him for Galaxy of Terror. And I'm glad I did. I'm so happy for the memories that all these people, Dee Wallace, Barbara Crampton, Adrian Barbeau, Harry Dean Stanton, it goes on, Donald Pleasance, uh, Tony Todd, Robert Englund, Kane Hodder, everybody that gave me so many wonderful memories. And that includes Tom Savini, who was a huge part of my life growing up. Thank you. This is Harrison Smith. Thank your favorite horror star. And most of all, thank you for listening. Enjoy the memories. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.